Hello and welcome to Stuffed in Your Ear, our first attempt at creating a podcast and our first attempt at delivering an audio version of Stuffed to Your Ears. Uh, that's the name. I'm Simeon Adams, creative partner at Good Stuff. I'm your host for this episode. Uh, you'll be hearing from a glittering array of media and creative luminaries, as well as hearing from some expert voices from within Good Stuff HQ. We've produced this podcast as an accompaniment to the 100th edition of Stuffed. If you don't know what Stuffed is, where have you been? But it's Good Stuff's incredibly popular weekly digest of what's hot in the world of commercial media, creativity and culture more broadly. Uh, so we're going to bring you a bit more depth, uh, a bit more discussion perspective, a little sprinkling of provocation. Uh, but before we do that, I'd just like to say a big thank you and have a big shout out to the Good Stuff Stuffed editorial team. Lots of people to mention, but Catherine Flynn, Jordine Bartlett, Beth Jones, they wrangle the whole thing together, make it look good and, and, and now sound good. We have our culture editor, Tim Watley, our brilliant commercial editor, Dave Carpenter. I very humbly share creative editorial duties with Ketan Ladd. And then we have a host of contributors from across the, across the agency. So a massive thanks to all of them. Please don't forget to make sure all of their hard graft is rewarded by, by spreading the word and sharing stuff to anyone that might enjoy it. So anyway... First up, we're going to dive into our commercial segment. Now, there's, there's obviously a number of hot topics, but the one story that we thought represents the, the greatest unknown uh, and we think has the greatest potential impact on the UK media scene is the plans for streaming giants Netflix and, of course, uh, Disney Plus to carry advertising. So seismic, potentially exciting, most definitely. Uh, so we asked Paul McGee, AV wizard, tele-evangelist and Good Stuff's group broadcast director to dissect this news uh, and the potential outcomes thereof and also to talk to leading industry lights about this about this story from, from their perspectives. We're currently sitting on the precipice of one of the biggest changes in the TV market in the last 20 years. As rumours turn to announcements, turn to concrete plans as Netflix and Disney Plus both launch ad-funded tiers next year. In its relatively short life, SVOD services, with Netflix at the forefront, have grown quickly from a niche to massive players in the broadcast market. They're spending a billion dollars in UK content a year, challenging the broadcasters for content spend as well as studio space and talent. The programmes they have created have won awards across the board, caught the cultural zeitgeist and become essential viewing. Shows like House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Squid Game, Afterlife and many others. Us TV buyers could start to see that the massive chunk of time people were spending outside of traditional TV exploded in 2020, so we knew something was changing. Whilst Netflix and the rest historically were very protective of their viewing data, Barb's new 360 panel allowed to peek into the new landscape. Whilst we saw younger audiences spend less and less time on live TV, they were moving that attention over with a quarter of viewing on the TV set for 1634's dedicated to the SVOD streamers. So SVOD came at a perfect time for the pandemic. Audiences locked down at home, flocked to these services with hours of diverse content, no rolling news and no advertising. Investors piled in and by the end of 2021, Netflix had seen its share price double from pre-pandemic. Disney Plus seen the potential to get their content straight to consumers unmediated, piled in with high-profile commissions from their extensive IP suite, including the Disney back catalogue, Star Wars and Marvel. From Ofcom figures recently released, 
Netflix's 40,646 hours of content this April exceeded the PSB VOD libraries combined, including iPlayer, All4 and ITV Hub. I'd like to introduce Dan Taylor-Watts. Dan is a digital consultant, um, the man who uh, at the BBC brought us iPlayer. So um, no one better in the market really to talk about the sort of challenges that Netflix and Disney Plus have got. So I just wanted to ask you first, uh, Dan, um, uh, what made Netflix success it has become? You know, is it more than just simply it didn't have any adverts and it nicked some content from other people, or was it or was it something more about the platform that drove its relative success? Yeah, so I think de- definitely more than just those two things. I think Netflix did really change the game and then played that game pretty well for a number of years. Um, so they weren't the first, but they did go all in on streaming really early doors and without having to worry about broadcast TV channels in the equation. I think, as you say, kind of acquiring huge swathes of broadcasters' back catalogues with, with pretty good rights deals was, uh, was a good move. Um, but then they clocked that they needed to ramp up their original commissioning uh, as they were starting to lose that acquired catalogue. I think it really helped that they were able to borrow so much money uh, during that, that period. So, you know, it wasn't in the midst of a, an economic downturn and the the global expansion and growth really persuaded investors to to keep on pumping more money in. I think they've also played a really good PR game, so created a lot of mythology around how House of Cards came to be remade and, and how they use data to, to drive both their commissioning but also the on-product experience and I, and I think the, uh, the the reality sometimes differs um, and finally I think they, they've really invested in in the user experience and um, particularly kind of pioneered the use of multivariate testing to uh, show some users one thing and, and some users another uh, and then measure the impact of those uh, changes and consequently they've got, got a product that's incredibly uh, well-tested and finessed. Adding on to that one, Dan, um, we're starting to see some kind of research from Ofcom and some other people as well around a lot of younger audiences. Their go-to now is SVOD and kind of Netflix being the kind of the main one of that one, really. So... Um, Big a big chunk of what um, the Ofcom report said was that anything under people under forty five, they're about three or four times more likely when looking for any sort of TV content, going straight to S four services rather than going through, going to live TV. Do you think we're starting to sort of see, see TV being a different thing for younger and older audiences going forward? Uh, I think that age is a bit of a proxy for different behaviours, and there is a risk of becoming too binary about that. So younger audiences have definitely adopted streaming more quickly than older audiences um, and don't necessarily tend to have the same broadcast TV habits as the older generation. But older generations are starting to adopt uh, uh, streaming services and watch less broadcast TV. So I think there's there's a risk of kind of uh, simplifying it. Um, and I think part of that problem is a slight conflation of uh, content with distribution methods. So I think that the, unlike Reed Hastings, I think that, that live and linear TV have a, uh, a bright future in the mix, but just not necessarily over broadcast networks. Um, so I think it's sort of more helpful to think about commissioning and acquiring the right content uh, for all of the people you're trying to reach. Uh, across your full suite of channels, both broadcast and streaming. I think, I mean, reading the 
Ofcom Media Nations report, I think a more profound shift, uh, which does seem to be generational, is just the sheer amount of time that young people are spending on media that isn't broadcast TV or streaming. Uh, I was particularly struck by the TikTok figures, uh, so nearly 5 million, 15 to 24, spending an average of 57 minutes a day on TikTok, uh, which that doesn't not suggest that streamers or broadcasters should all pile in on on TikTok, but I think being aware of the the relative slice of the media pie and how that's changing and and potentially the need to deliver impact with fewer hours, to be honest. However, that success put a massive target on Netflix's back. More and more content houses started putting successful shows off the platform and onto their new ones. The Office came off Netflix and went to Peacock, NBC's F-funded streamer, and Friends went to HBO Max in the US, amongst other shows. The explosion of competing services squeezed Netflix's library, especially in the US, pushing it to need to commission more and more content. An unspoken fact of Netflix was that too much of the time people were spending on it were coming from third-party content from the big studios, content that they couldn't control. Eventually, the promise of never-ending growth caught up with Netflix and investors became spooked. With rumours circulating, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings announced in April this year that in the name of consumer choice they would be implementing an ad-funded tier. Disney also made similar announcements about an ad-funded tier this year and since then we've had drips information coming through. These SVOD services have spent the last five years disrupting the traditional broadcast market and now it seems they have their sights set on the broadcasting advertising market. Netflix took pride in being the innovator in streaming but they're coming into a well-established video advertising market. The value proposition for customers is going to be a difficult balance for SVOD services. People's lived experience of them is of an ad-free environment with huge catalogues of high-quality content from the US, UK and around the world. The technical challenge is going to be significant, integrating ad-serving into the platform, finding mid-roll spaces and segmenting content amongst a myriad of different hurdles to clear. I asked Dan about the scale of the job that streamers have in integrating ads into their platform. So I guess, you know, Netflix, as you said, had a really good run of it across 2020 and 2021. But obviously they've kind of hit the skids a bit over the last kind of maybe four or five months, especially with subscriber numbers kind of going backwards, uh, investors getting a bit, a little bit afraid of them. So they've talked about then bringing ads into their services and it went from a rumour to being, you know, a pretty much crystallised kind of process. So I guess on a, on a broader sense, someone who knows how it is to build a streaming service, like how difficult and how challenging is Netflix and Disney's job going to be in integrating an ad into their services? I think the technologies are a lot more mature than they were when the first uh, Avodic services started popping up uh, years ago. However, all of the companies that I work with who are, who are playing in the ad-supported space spend a significant proportion of their time trying to get that right, both on the, on the front end and at the back end. Um, and I think even when ads are really well targeted, delivered really seamlessly, that they're still seen by audiences as a, as a bit of a necessary evil. So, so you really want to get it right. Um, I think both of them will definitely be diverting a lot of resource to try and get it right. Disney obviously has experience with Hulu and ESPN of, of doing ad-supported streaming, whereas Netflix has uh, butted up with Microsoft to try and kind of uh, uh, pump prime their experience there. I mean, I think Netflix have made some statements about uh, 
uh, aspirations around improving that user experience of ads. Um, they they will though have to work with some limitations, as you say. I think the doing that across all of the different devices and platforms that these services are on is a challenge. Also, the content rights don't necessarily work in your favour. So there's uh, Netflix have already said that they uh, the ad supported tier won't be the full catalogue because they don't have the the rights to offer all of that on that basis. Um, I think speculation that the downloads for offline viewing won't be supported in that uh, the ad supported tier. Um, but I think, as you say, also the you know break, breaking the content in the right places. They they said they're doing mid roll as as well as pre roll. Uh, not not easy if the content's uh, not been commissioned or acquired for that for that purpose. And I think we've all, we've all kind of uh, had the experience of seeing the joins where that's not been done well. Uh, so I think they uh, they will be investing a lot to to try and get it right against the clock. <laughs> Netflix has employed Microsoft to sell the ad space. So there's a sense that Netflix are seeing themselves as being part of a digital ad environment rather than a TV one. However, speaking to Lindsay Clay, the CEO of Thinkbox, there's a clear need for Netflix to work with and within the current advertising framework across TV. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome Lindsay Clay, the CEO of uh, Thinkbox, to the podcast today. Hello, and thank you for having me. So, first off, what sort of ad experience do you think Netflix is going to deliver in comparison to the kind of traditional broadcasters in the streaming environment? Well, I think it's a completely fascinating question. And to be honest, uh, your guess is as good as mine at the moment because it's very unclear what the uh, the nature of the ad model is going to be. But I think there are some things that you can say. Uh, Netflix is effectively TV in terms of its content environment. It's a really high quality content environment. It's some. It's a place that people are choosing to go to spend time with. Uh, there's huge amounts of you know, literal TV content on there because they buy it from uh, a lot of the uh, the broadcasters are our shareholders. Um, so it's it it should be a very similar content environment, which is great because that's going to be really prized by advertisers. But in terms of you know how they're going to choose to what the advertising experience is going to be. It's really, really hard to tell. You know, if it's going to be a similar model, which is, well, you know, a certain amount of um, minutes per hour in specific slots, um, I think in some ways it's it's better to be what consume what viewers are already familiar with because they're likely to be more accepting of it. Um, you know, because that it, it follows the model of you know watching uh, high quality streamed content, you know, with advertising around it. But I think the other thing that's worth saying is. TV advertising means all sorts of things now. I think it's not, you know, you use the word traditional, and I think TV advertising is anything but traditional. Uh, obviously, it, you know, you can go for sort of, you know, broad demographics, broad reach, mass targeting, but of course it's got a million tools in the TV's toolbox now, you know, incredibly tight targeting, uh, geo-targeting, you know, all the sort of, you know, data and tech capabilities. So actually... You know, if they could, they could use any of those approaches, and it would be TV-like. Fantastic! I think Netflix have got Microsoft on board to kind of sell the ad inventory. Essentially, they've always seen themselves as being, you know, the first people into the market, the first people to do X, Y, and Z. They're now going into quite a mature market that's been kind of working on, you know, the traditional kind of linear front for 30, 40 years, and then also in the SVOD, sorry, the BVOD market again uh, for the last sort of ten, fifteen years or so. So. 
Do you think that Netflix really needs to kind of work with the current model and how do you think they will do that? I think it's worth them um, analysing that model very closely before they dismiss it because there's all sorts of things that's really positive about it. And, and the other thing I would say is um, they should focus very closely on what is going to be valued by advertisers because, you know, partnering with the broadcasters is less of an issue really what they really need to focus on is what do advertisers prize what do they value in advertising and a lot of that is what the broadcast model is set up uh, to support so it's you know highly regulated it's trusted uh, the uh, adminitage is controlled uh, all the ads are pre-cleared beforehand so you know exactly what you're getting um, and there's a level of transparency about viewer data uh, viewing data and advertising data and that is you know th- those are some of the components that advertisers have come to really value you know along with the high quality content environment so I think um, Netflix uh, would be wise to look at those and think well are we just going to do something completely different that is not that or are we going to try and give advertisers uh, some of the things that you know they already really value about that content environment and would you say measurement is going to be the biggest challenge they have and and that measurement in the framework of the you know the entire video marketplace you know well, it's it's the topic du jour, isn't it? It's the thing that everybody is talking about. Um, obviously, the broadcasters in the UK have uh, worked incredibly hard in collaboration to come up with SeaFlight, which uh, is going to uh, uh, allow them to, well, it's already allowing them to uh, deliver deduplicated reach and frequency across the different forms of TV. Um, I, I think that's a big question for Netflix. How are they going to handle that aspect of the model when traditionally... They they haven't been very good about sharing uh, any kind of data because they haven't needed to. Uh, you know, it's a subscription model, so actually uh, they don't. They traditionally haven't been very bothered about how much viewing happens. It's you know what their retention rate is on um, subscribers, but that is going to become incredibly important now to the advertising customers of Netflix. So that's a really big challenge. And are they going to just um, sort that? themselves traditionally um the broadcasters you know that is is done via third parties and it gives that level that you know that extra level of trust and transparency so netflix just going to organize that themselves are they going to partner with um trusted research company how much you know how comfortable are they going to be sharing some of that data but that's going to be hugely important to advertisers and and i guess would you and, and the broadcast in general be concerned about there being two different streams of measurement there being you know the kind of the more video kind of CTV stuff with uh, Netflix, Disney and big American companies doing their own thing, working with another partner and then sort of cutting out the broadcasts from that. Is that a concern that you've got or do you think that the market dynamics are going to force everyone to work together? Well, it's it's an interesting question and we'll see what happens. But uh, that that sort of quality, uh, regulated, trusted, gold standard barb type measurement is what is one of the components that has made... TV very successful and highly effective for advertisers. Um, it would be, you know, ideally, uh, as media fragments, uh, it, it would be good to be able to, you know, put, put them in the same pot together. Um, but that's up to Netflix, really. It depends if they think they can, you know, uh, and they're a, you know, very impressive, successful company. Uh, you know, it's one of the decisions that they've got to make. How are they going to handle that aspect of their business? Um, but 
I think advertisers would value uh, having, you know, a central source of uh, measurement for TV. Uh, so, you know, you imagine at some point uh, Netflix might join SeaFlight. Fantastic. Potentially would... Um Thinkbox allow Netflix onto their board? Well, that's a great question and uh, one of the uh, questions to be uh, decided and discussed between our shareholders, um, you know, over the over the coming months and we'll be certainly looking at the uh, Netflix model very closely. And I mean, I think there's all sorts of there's all sorts of reasons why we would. Um, you know, Netflix is is TV effectively. It's, you know, really high quality. Uh, it's not just TV like content. It is TV uh, content. So there's an awful lot, certainly in terms of a sort of content environment, that it has in common with our uh, shareholders. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay. Pleasure. One of the other big boys of digital getting into the AVOB market, but on a different model, is Amazon. After a soft launch early this year, Amazon will start actively promoting their freebie proposition. Freebie is a separate content pillar that currently lives with Amazon Prime, with free-to-air content supported by advertising. The sale for advertisers is not only a streaming-centric audience, but also access to Amazon's first-party data. With online tracking becoming harder and harder, giving advertisers access to real consumer behaviour through such a platform sets them out in the marketplace. Dan, um, what sort of appetite do you think there is going to be from consumers for this? Obviously, you know, there's a huge amount of appetite from advertisers to get in there, and I think the fact that we can finally kind of get, have a chance to reach those audiences that have kind of turned their back a little bit from the kind of the live commercial airtime that we've been kind of working on. For consumers, though, like, do you think, from what you've heard so far, that the value proposition is going to be the right one? I think it's the right thing for both companies to be doing. Uh, arguably, Netflix didn't have much choice off the back of those subscriber numbers. I think in terms of consumer appetite, I think it, it really comes down to the pricing. Um, so I think there's been speculation just in the last, week or so that Netflix are looking at a sort of seven to nine dollar price point for the ad supported tier, which which is sort of half the cost of their standard uh, tier in the US. So that's that feels like quite a uh, an attractive price point potentially. Um, as you say, Disney are kind of switching out their uh, their current standard tier um, for this ad-supported tier and then pushing up the, the cost of the ad-free ad tier. Um, I think, you know, Disney are sort of a bit less on the back foot. So I think that the, uh, I think they've done well to establish, establish the annual membership when they did, where you're kind of out of the monthly billing cycle of, is it worth me paying for this particular service in, in a given month? So if you can get, uh, Users to persuade themselves they're they're saving fifteen percent and and get out of that cycle. That's uh, that's a good thing. Um, but I think the economic factors are sort of pushing in both directions. So on the one hand, uh, I think inflation is likely to you know cause some brands to uh, scale back their ad spend. But I think that the on the flip side, then economic downturns do tend to result in in people watching more. TV and in this in this era, likelihood streaming services. Um, however, you know both both Netflix and Disney, it's it's not free um, even on the ad supported tier. Um, and I think that the uh, free to air TV uh, and you know the things like uh, uh, Freevee, where there's there's no um, 
no payment required uh, might be bigger beneficiaries um, uh, as, as happened during the, the pandemic uh, at the peak. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Dan. Really, really appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you. Partnering with Microsoft makes a huge amount of sense, especially considering the other contenders would either integrate them into an opaque technology platform like Google or hand the keys over to an organisation that Netflix wanted to kill in the first place, NBC or Comcast. The scale of building the ad tech to fit seamlessly into a well-engineered SVOD service in less than six months is going to be a huge challenge. But what about advertisers? The current TV market is in a curious place. More demand than ever, with ITV and Channel 4 delivering the best ever ad revenue results last year. But commercial reach has consistently fallen across key younger audiences over the last three years, causing eye-opening levels of inflation on prices. I spoke to Christian Depp, Director of Growth at Harry's, about what he wants to see from an ad-funded Netflix. So I'd like to introduce Christian Dapp, the Director of Growth at Harry's Razors, uh, one of our uh, favourite clients, of course. Thank you very much. Um, so I want to start by asking you really around what do you and more broadly the kind of advertising market want to see from an ad-funded Netflix? Well, I think the first and most exciting thing for me is potentially competition. Because if you look at, we obviously work from a global perspective, we see lots of different advertising markets, and the fewer the advertisers, the more prices get inflated. And I think if you look at VOD so far in the UK, you've got Sky, you've got Channel 4, you've got a few key players uh, taking up the majority of the market. And as we see Netflix and Disney, etc., come through and really widen the amount of reach there, the natural knock-on effect should be a broader and more diverse range of advertising choices for advertisers, whether it's pure brand, whether it's, as we're starting to see already, um, VOD going into the DR space. Uh, and hopefully what that should mean is over time, once you've got past the initial new and exciting price peak, we should see prices start to come down and see a more diverse range of options for advertisers. Which raises a broader question for us tele-nerds. Buying an ad spot on TV isn't as simple as it seems. Pricing is based on supply and demand, and big holding groups buy their airtime through annual share commitments. Netflix and Disney Plus are arguably too big to go under the radar, so their appearance is going to give broadcasters a big headache. Is ITV going to want big agency holding groups count Netflix into their share commitments? How could this even be policed? Those are the head scratches, but SVOD services entering the ad market could start a renaissance for TV advertising. The previous massive black hole of viewers locked behind the SVOD wall may be now reachable, expanding the reach and depth of TV campaigns, especially on the harder-to-reach younger audiences. I asked Christian Dapp from Harry's again about this. Is it, is it, is it going to be really important for you as an advertiser to have your plans be integrated as possible? So you talk about you know competition, those sorts of things. Do you think you also need to have a much kind of stronger sense of where those audiences and where those impressions are being delivered? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no one-size-fits-all approach for advertisers, and sometimes I think that's a trap we fall into. You know, when you're working with a product like Harry's, which has quite a broad mass-market appeal, um, with the price inflation we've seen for younger audiences, we are able to flip and adapt and look at different audiences to get the the best possible optimum reach. Um, Whereas if you are you know, if you are are selling a product that is primarily targeted at a younger audience, you're going to have a lot fewer options at your disposal. Um, so I think there's going to be short, medium and long-term impacts of this sort of move. You're going to see in the short term, you're going to see early adopters and people with specific audience interest. Um, but as that grows and develops over time, you're going to see a broader range of advertisers step into the mix. Um, 
so yeah, I think there's a there's a broad range of impacts you're going to see across the different advertisers, but I think it's really important for advertisers to jump in at the right time um, for their business. And I guess fundamentally as well, do you think the introduction of Disney Plus and Netflix and other kind of festival services is going to make TV campaigns better? Are they going to reach more audiences, more impact, and also potentially with better data sources and better targeting metrics? Well, I assume we won't reach more purely because of CPTs. And if we just purely go, and uh, you can tell I'm coming from a dirty DR background here, <laughs> but if you're just looking at pure reach, you're not going to necessarily see the same, see the same levels of reach. Um, but we also know that there's a real point around the quality of the interaction uh, and the data you get at the back end of that interaction and what you can do in terms of retargeting, what you can, you can do in terms of understanding the measurable brand uplift of that audience. And so I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of different use cases in the first few different first few years. Um, you're going to see a lot of different ways of doing things um, and you're going to need to work out what works for you. Thank you very much for your opinions uh, and your thoughts, uh, Christian. Uh, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. The potential is massive for these platforms. And after many years of consolidation and slow progress in the broadcasters, the market is sitting up in anticipation. There's clearly a lot of challenges for each of the SVOD services to meet, and it remains to be seen the appetite audiences will have for ads on previously commercial-free environments. If they can get the value proposition in the right way between preserving the quality of the environment and an unobtrusive ad experience, then both Netflix and Disney Plus could be onto a winner. Broadcasters are still going to be the bedrock of our TV lives as they continue to be dominant on broader, mass-market audiences. However, can Netflix and Disney Plus cut a new space, straddling the TV and digital worlds of advertising in a way that our current broadcasters haven't quite managed. So, in conclusion, Netflix and Disney Plus are coming with ads and it'll be with us before we know it. They'll be fundamentally recasting their relationship with their consumers and entering into a quickly evolving and dynamic advertising market. There are a huge number of unknowns and speculation, but we know that Netflix will want to paint their ad proposition as an exclusive, high-impact and rarefied club, the Netflix of advertising, if you will. <laughs> So some fascinating takes there from Paul and his guests. So thank you to Lindsay, Dan and Christian. Uh, a story that will doubtless rumble on like a good serialised drama. I'm keen to see how it unfolds. So brilliant stuff. But next up, we've got a real treat for you in the creative section of Stuffed In Your Ears. Uh, it's a cosy fireside chat about a subject very close to my heart and obviously Good Stuff's reason for being, media creativity. So Genevieve Tompkins, managing partner at Good Stuff, has gathered around a roaring microphone with none other than Lucky General's Andy Nairn and Zoe Harris, CMO of On The Beach. They're going to be discussing this year's Cannes Lion Grand Prix winning Sheba Reef. Hello, I'm Genevieve Tompkins, managing partner at Good Stuff, and I'm taking on the hosting duties for the creative section of Stuffed In Your Ear. This section of Stuffed brings you interesting new creative work from the global marketing world, but with a slight difference. So it's not just about breaking campaigns and who made them, but specifically finding campaigns where we can with smart, creative or inventive media thinking and implementation. Obviously, this is central to the proposition here at Good Stuff, but I want to take this opportunity to explore the notion of media creativity. How do you define it? Does it really work to increase the effectiveness of our marketing efforts? And ultimately, is it all worth a bother or should we just stick to buying spots and space? I know I've got a pretty strong view on that one. 
So we're going to take a look at the campaign currently hailed as the best example of creativity globally, the Cannes Lions Grand Prix winning Sheba Hope Reef campaign, and ask whether it's really worthy of the accolades it's received. To help me today in the discussion and debate around this meaty topic, I thought I'd draft in two of the most respected marketing and creative brains in the industry. So firstly, we've got Zoe Harris, CMO of Challenger Holiday and Travel Business on the Beach, and Andy Nern, co-founder of creative agency Lucky Generals and author of Go Luck Yourself, a book all about finding opportunity in unexpected places. Hi, Andy, and hi, Zoe. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Looking forward to it. Hi there. Thank you very much for having us on. So today I I thought we'd really get into the core of our subject around media creativity. Um, I guess the first question would be from your own sort of respective areas as, you know, creative agency and and client. How do you, how would you define media creativity? And maybe you've got an example of that that you could share. Andy, should we start with you? Well, I think media creativity is any way of amplifying the big brand strategy through the channels you use, or maybe amplifying the uh, creative or being the creative uh, idea in its own right, because the medium can itself be the message. Or maybe it's also um, creative ways to use that moment in time, in particular, if there's a kind of moment when people are making the decision or buying something or the habit that you're trying to change is... um, up for grabs and is forefront of the mind, then the media, clever uses of media can be a brilliant ways of, uh, of of getting to people when they're in the right state of mind with the right message and just making everything work a lot harder. Yeah, I think, I think there's kind of two categories really for media creativity. One is when uh, the media channel uh, amplifies the creative message. And those are always really exciting ideas when you kind of see the sum of two parts come together and it can make the creative sing, sing really and, and then also make the, the media really, really come to life. And then the other part, isn't it, is sometimes less related to the creative or the creative idea, but just a kind of single-minded media interpretation of a client brief that, that is the creative thinking behind perhaps a more traditional creative element perhaps. And I think those two things can both be uh, really effective and really exciting for brands and, and, and people brand owner side. So let's just think a minute. A minute. I was just going to bring us back to the to the, the Sheba Hope Reef initiative. So I'm just going to give a bit more of a kind of context first. So <clears throat> as we know, this has been sort of the, you know, the Grand Prix winning uh, uh, best example of creativity globally. But, you know, it was hugely ambitious. So just a bit, bit of background on this. So Sheba wanted to raise awareness um, about the threat facing marine life and fishing stocks by using this you know, cleverly conceived restoration project to shine a light on the issue. In doing so, convey that obviously Sheba uses sustainable sources for for its products, uh, whilst demonstrating over the long term, I think their goal is 2029, uh, that regeneration is possible. So, you know, embarked on this sort of tremendously uh, ambitious journey with their agency partners and Google to create the world's largest coral reef restoration program. Um, now, obviously, you know, <clears throat> fundamentally, it's it's a, a vast out-of-home experience, you could you could argue. And there, to your point, Zoe, kind of perfectly merging creative idea and, and media execution um, and, and very much aligned 
uh, to a brand and cultural truth and a need. So bucket loads of bravery and ambition uh, and a great tech partner to sort of deliver that global global viewing access. But as such a long-term project that's not really about the consumer experience right now, it was quite an interesting approach, I thought. I'm really keen to get your views on this one. Andy? Oh, wow. I mean, <laughs> it feels churlish to sort of pick faults with such... A, but in, in, in many ways, it is a great idea for all the reasons that you have given. Um and you know we should applaud innovative mm. uh, uh, attempts to do stuff in this in this field, and and, and at least there was in this case, you know, because a lot of purposeful advertising or ideas don't really f- have much of a link with the product, but there was a clear sort of link about mm. and this is their main ingredient, and they need to show that they're a responsible sourcing. Um, I just don't quite know where whether to me it felt a little bit like a one-off. Um, I mean, it's a one-off absolute extravaganza, which is fantastic, but I don't necessarily see it as part of a bigger story. Perhaps that's my fault. I've not um, paid enough attention to it. Um, I don't quite know whether it had the mainstream exposure um, beyond our little awards um, jury kind of village. um, And... Yeah, so I, I I'm I'm not knocking it at all, but I just I wonder whether uh, it was a, it's a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to pour into one thing, whereas you can have you know other great pieces of media creative can uh, run for many years and be part of a more integrated system that perhaps is more effective at, um, at, at selling the product and and actually perhaps sometimes making a difference to the world as well. I was going to say I'll be maybe more direct and rude than Andy's been. Uh, When we were talking about this today, I'll confess, I hadn't seen it at all. I had to go and look it up. I looked it up and I couldn't particularly see a clear link between coral and cat food. Uh, You read it and you go, oh, right. But it's a bit of a journey. I'm not sure the average cat owner is thinking about coral when they're thinking about tiddlywinks or whatever they call their cats. (laughs) Um, And... Then I just as well was curious about the effectiveness of it based on that. And and I saw uh, when I was looking at one of the agency websites, a claim of 301% ROI, how they ever measured that improved it and whether it would stack up for an FE award, I'm not sure. But but really, I, I kind of see it as a PR stunt using tech, style over substance, as Andy said, something that wins awards. But uh, you know, I've not. No one's talked to me about it. I hadn't come across it myself. I looked at it and kind of went, "Yeah, nice, nice use of Google, and it's a nice picture from space." But, but really, this feels a very expensive PR exercise. I think I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think fundamentally the numbers of eyeballs delivered on the within the portal itself haven't been actually that that significant. Um, and, and actually, the consumer experience is not that great, to be honest. You you sort of have a look and it, you can see some coral. Uh, there are no fish. So um, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And actually, Zoe, you mentioned you know a really key aspect to all of this, which is uh, measuring effectiveness. And I think you know with the, I wouldn't be a good media practitioner without without talking about measurement. 
But I think sometimes what gets in the way of doing these kind of great media creative ideas are, you know, clients do like to have be able to forecast and predict what might happen. And, and with some of these things, it's a bit of a leap of faith. Um, but but I think measuring how effective something's been is another thing that's critically important. Do you, How do you, Zoe, as a client, how do you go about measuring the effectiveness of, of these sort of pieces of activity where it's not your standard sort of spots and space plan? You've got this kind of great media creativity that's enhancing the overall piece. I think the... The spots and spaces is fine, isn't it? It makes you feel good on paper. But if no one remembers your ad, that, that you know, reach and frequency and all of that's total waste of time, really. So ultimately, it's about the effectiveness for me after that of how many people have remembered it, talked about it, knew it was you that did it. And, um, and, and that's the same really on anything you do, isn't it? Whether it's a TV campaign or a PR thing like this, I would say is PR, but, you know, whatever you want to call it, or... Or anything else it's it really is a leap of faith always and I think the point is uh, client side is the safer you are with something the less effective it's likely to be so you have to be challenging yourself always to feel a bit afraid of what you're doing it's great to hear that um you know from a from a client perspective I think it's interesting because from an agency agency side you know sometimes it feels like you're taking an idea and, and not being able to sort of give confidence in what it might deliver uh, might be the thing thing that holds it back but I think culturally you know businesses are moving towards the idea that we need to move people you know we need to to entertain them people want to feel something as a result of their sort of brand experiences and I know um, Andy from a Lucky General's perspective it, it seems like you guys really buy into that idea as well you know you've hired a head of special ops in in Paul Mallon what was your thinking behind that? Well Paul was um, our very first client so we founded nine years ago with a campaign called Rainbow Laces where it's the classic example of the medium was the message and the creative in the media were impossible to untangle because, you know, the idea was that we would send out rainbow-coloured bootlaces to every single footballer in the country to sort of um, take a stand and show support um, against homophobia in football. Um, what I like about that campaign and the reason that we ultimately, nine years later, we managed to uh, attract Paul away from Paddy Power was that it was absolutely mass-market populist, you know, the... It really did. The, the the reach of the campaign was hugely enhanced by the interest in creative medium in a way that I think, as we've exposed in the last conversation, sometimes clever creative media ideas can shrink the message because we try to do something clever um, but end up reaching fewer people with it and, and just talking to the you know people in our own little bubbles sort of thing. Um, so what we loved about Rainbow Laces was that it was big, ballsy, very famous, um, uh, ongoing, long-running. It's now a nine-year campaign and we're in talks with Stonewall to, to do what we, you know, to, to work out what we do for year nine. Um, so it wasn't just a one-off. It was kind of much more strategic, um, ongoing thinking, um, but still incredibly creative. And that's, to me, that's what genuine creativity is about. It's, you know, for a specific end and uh, long-term and more strategic rather than just stunts. Tremendous success there. Thanks for sharing that, Andy. I mean, I think I think creating the right kind of culture in your business to allow for people to to pursue these sort of ambitions through creativity. I mean, that is it's not always easy for businesses to achieve, particularly when there's more and more pressure on that short term ROI. I mean, Zoe, do, how do you do that at, on the beach? Do, do, 
do you have a culture of creativity? Are people sort of free to, um, you know, pursue creativity? Because fundamentally, often these campaigns that we're talking about require, you know, more resource, more effort, more partners. How do you go about that? I'm not sure that's right, actually. I don't know, Andy might correct me here, but say the shoelace example there, I imagine it was very difficult to get the footballers, to, enough of them to wear them year one. But actually that wasn't about cost, right? It was producing some shoelaces. And Andy, is, is that totally wrong? Was it actually very expensive no, and a nightmare? You're, you're uh, getting it right, uh, Zoe, as ever. <laughs> so, it's the, so it's the simple ideas. And I think what happens actually is, agency side and client side is we're guilty of thinking that big ideas are expensive production things yes and actually the best ideas are are actually often the the that then they're untraditional in the way you don't really think of shoelaces right when you start with trying to think about how you're going to address homophobic behavior in football that's the creativity that's the hard part and actually those ideas often are not that expensive and therefore less risky but those ideas are much harder for people to come up with because it's easier to go, oh, let's go and spunk a million quid on some build in Trafalgar Square or whatever, you know. Those, And for me, that's not creativity. I kind of look at those, I go, oh, God, not one of these again. If, if you could come up with the equivalent of a, a shoelace idea, I'd be like, biting your hands off for it. <laughs> it sounds like, but they're hard to come by. Sounds like you're setting us a challenge there, Zoe. Um, <laughs> I talk me through your, um, I know obviously you, you had that campaign um, earlier this year, your Piccadilly Gardens poster, which was sort of throwing shade at, at Magnum. I mean, that felt like a sort of great reactive campaign, you know, using medium and message. I mean, ha- just, just talk me through that process and, and what you were looking to gain from it. Well, the truth of it is, I got a message from uh, Andrew, uh, your CEO at Good Stuff, saying, great thing in Piccadilly Gardens. And I was like, blimey, what's he talking about? And went on Twitter and saw it. So the team and and had spoken to you at Good Stuff, seen the thing in Piccadilly Gardens, mocked up a social post, said, let's get it on, a, on an ad van in Piccadilly Gardens. So it was taking the mick out of the Magnum ice cream ad, saying that the only thing better than being in Piccadilly Gardens was being there with a magnum and everyone knows in Manchester that Piccadilly Gardens is the last place you ever want to be ever even with a magnum (laughs) and so we did a spin on that saying actually you want to be on the beach and uh, on the beach is based in Manchester and so uh, has quite a you know it's a strong regional base for us there as well Um, but yeah the team did it and I think turned it around in a few hours there was no approved I didn't see it before I saw it and heard about it on Twitter Uh, so I think there's an element there of of um, uh, empowering teams to make things happen quickly and, you know, having money, to, you know, budget to, to have a go at those things. And then, you know, it's a bit of, isn't it, again, fingers crossed that it, it kind of gets momentum and gets picked up across press and social. And, and trust, it's, you know, to talk about the right culture and conditions, it's, it's sort of that trust in the team. And actually, just in terms of effectiveness, I mean, that we're seeing an explosion, aren't we, of, of these sorts of out-of-home out campaigns where actually they're designed to get the social pickup and, you know, media owners will talk about potential 10x in earn, earn media. How common is it that, that, you know, from your perspective or, or both your experiences, that those kind of campaigns, particularly the out-of-home ones, really get the earned reach that that sort of promised or, or, or clients potentially think is available? I mean, ha- did, what happened to you, Zoe? What happened as a result of that campaign? Do you know what? That was a nice bit of extra social media coverage and it got some trade pick up. 
uh, it was nice for us around Manchester. It was good internally because people's friends and family saw it and was like, oh, I've seen that on the beach thing that you did. But in the scheme of things, it wasn't massive. I think to make those things really have value, you have to be doing them week in, week out. And that's our ambition at On The Beach is to get to that that place where we're fast and nimble and, and doing those things all the time and you see the brand Pad- Paddy Power obviously is, is, is obviously is, is one of the really high profile examples of a brand that uh, gets it right and often gets it right well, nine times out of ten doesn't it and, and catches your eye um, again it's, it's difficult to do uh, consistently and, and Andy are clients asking for it do you, do you find that this is in more in demand now clients want their media agencies to be you know, more creative and not just put standard, you know, spots and space on, to Zoe's point, on into PowerPoint decks. I mean, are you seeing that? Are you seeing more media agencies being charged with, you know, working closer with creative agencies to amplify campaigns in this way? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, uh, everybody is trying to make their budgets go further. And this is just another sort of aspect of that. And, and I think in particular what we're seeing is... Um, clients wanting creative agencies and media agencies to get back together again and really sort of work to, I mean obviously as we do on on lots and lots of um, clients together but they want they want that multiplier effect you know that um, uh, you know and not things to be done separately because then you end up with stunts either creative stunts or media stunts that don't add up to a bigger um, picture so um, I think you have to be a wee bit realistic it's interesting what um so he was saying there to get genuine sort of mass pickup in the mainstream media, you you sort of need to be doing something usually pretty much out there. The subject matter has either got to be shocking, or extremely topical, or um, or the execution has got to be funny, or the format has got to be, you know, um, ingenious either technologically or just striking, you know. Um, in terms of the, the special use of outdoor and so on. Um, so you, not everything will win. And I think you've, you've, you've also, which is why I love Zoe's point about keeping a certain amount of budget ring fence and set aside and almost accepting that some things might not get picked up. But then sometimes you can just, you know, if you strike on a lucky news day, you know, it can come down to that. If there's slightly less going on and you just get a brilliant visual image that's going to get traction on social um, or in the tabloids and or, or the, the telly or whatever, um, then things can really fly. And it's not always um, easy to predict. So you, you've got to just keep trying, I think, um, things and trying to experiment. Very true. I mean, it, it sounds like... Um, you know, we're all we're all big fans here of distinctive work and and you know, providing something for consumers that that they remember and and that they're interested in or, or moves them in some way. Um, Zoe, I mean, Andy earlier mentioned the Rainbow Laces campaign. Have you got any favourite examples of, of media creativity or, or any examples you've seen out there that that you know you've given us your your view uh, on on the Sheba Reef campaign? Any others that you just think were f- fantastic in terms of kind of nailing that consumer insight and really getting scale. Uh, well, it's a good stuff example, actually, which is the... E- <laughs> I did not e- tee that up, I promise. No, I think, well, actually, I'll say, I think that, I think it's it's quite hard to come by. And before we, we were having this conversation, I was trying to Google some media examples. And actually, what's interesting is everything that comes up on the first five pages is social media, which I think shows that, that 
how hard it is to do this and, and how few examples there are and, and maybe Andy's got more than me but but the um Eve Sleep I think is great which is uh and I saw it this week is it channel four isn't it when it's when it's yeah. late and it's about late, time late to go night to bed. sponsorship yeah the late night yeah. sponsorship and that actually was quite a challenge to get on air because obviously you've got a creative asset that's telling people essentially to switch off and switch off their tvs and go to bed so you know there was a fine line and that we had to balance there what was your view on it I think it well, when I saw it, uh, I think yesterday I saw it actually, and I was like, oh, yeah, I must turn off the TV, turn off my phone, go, you know, because I think it really taps into the kind of thing we're all aware of at the minute, isn't it? It's very sort of topical that we're all aware that we're guilty of doing too much with uh, and, and not going to sleep properly and turning out the lights and drawing the curtains and all, all of that and the TV off. So for me, it, it kind of really does make me go, oh, yeah, I must do that. And then uh, that that feeling around Eve and I really get how it relates to to their kind of mission around um having good sleep so it feels quite a pragmatic uh purpose for them where I really make the connection unlike the coral reef and cat food I really can see the connection between those two things and it's useful to me right like this week I genuinely went yes I must do that and I was knackered and but like I'm currently losing hours of my life to TikTok and really must delete it. <laughs> anyway, I was doing that and it was like, oh, this is actually useful yeah. and knowing and makes me feel, look, I didn't, I didn't properly think this last bit, but it does make me feel warmer about Eve as a brand as well. Great. Good, good to hear it. Um, Andy, any other good examples that you could share? Um, I, I've got a really, it's such an ancient example, but I think it's, to me, it's always been the gold standard, which kind of shows that it doesn't have to be super flashy. Uh, and basically, it was as I started off my advertising life many, many years ago at um, AMV, and it was actually even before the separation of creative and media, which shows how old I am. Um, but it was it's the Economist campaign. Oh, yes. And um, it was that apparently came about through a conversation between David Abbott and his and the head of the media department, as it was then, a guy called Ken New. And they were chatting, um, as people don't always do, to, you know, these days. But in those days, creative and media people chatting together, and they famously noticed that the um, the masthead on the Economist was a bit like a forty-eight sheet poster. And from that sort of chance conversation, they got into a conversation about wouldn't it be amazing to have, you know, to use outdoor for the Economist, which in conventional media sense might not have made sense. It might not have been the most obvious medium because it was very public and outdoor and I suppose there might have been an argument that said we should be going after a much more niche business audience somehow and this was too public um, um, but of course it turned out to be brilliant and uh, as I say it's not that's not super flashy there's no technology involved there but again that was a long running campaign worth decades where the creative and the medium were joined at the hip yeah uh, and we all remember it, and genuinely ordinary real people remember it, not just people in advertising. <laughs> and there was a wonderful iteration of that campaign, Andy, you, you may remember, on the tops of buses. Yes. Do you remember that? For those in high office, which I remember was just, you know, just phenomenally good in, in every regard, great copy, perfect placement, uh, you know, people seeing it through from their office windows. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, th- thanks for sharing that. I think I think actually you've made a really good point there, Andy, which is, uh, and, and reflecting what Zoe said, there aren't that many great examples. 
And and I'm seeing, you know, more and more of these sort of posters attempting to get social pickup. But is it really going to move the needle from from an effectiveness perspective? I think, you know, we we can't think of that many great examples. It sounds like we need to do better uh, as an industry to to be more creative and and potentially to understand the value of it. And I think that's that's where, um, you know, again, we we probably need to work a bit harder to to prove the effectiveness versus a sort of standard campaign. I don't know. It's, I don't. I don't know if it's the effectiveness. I think we probably all agree that without even needing to look at the data, these things are effective. It's just they're hard to come up with. I mean, one of the things channels that really irritates me is um, on VOD when it, you can choose this ad or that ad. I think. I think Magnum. Uh, everyone does it. Like, Magnum. Do you want this ice cream or this? Other? I couldn't give a shit which ice cream <laughs> ad I see. But I genuinely couldn't give mm. less. All I want is this advert over. Now you're irritating by me by I know I have to wait 10 seconds longer because I can't be asked to click something, give you the satisfaction of thinking that I prefer whatever it is. Or uh, or I click one just to, to, to get on with it. Or, or I wait the extra 10 seconds because I'm not going to fall for this annoying interactivity. I think it's things like that where I just go, this is just, you know, it's irritating. There's no thought gone into it from the creative or the media. It doesn't really work. Why are you bothering? I I I'll, I really agree with that. Actually, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. We we so we won Virgin Atlantic the other um, uh, you know, last year, and we just launched a big campaign with it this year. And and they are a, a brand who over many years have done lots of things like stunts. But funny enough, part of our brief this year was to not do stunty, you know, short term stuff because the CEO was saying, you know, we're sick of this. We want it to be. Um, you know these things they don't last you know they might be effective mm. in an ephemeral way but they they don't add up to anything and they're here today gone tomorrow um and and so where what the, the things that I think they've done best is if we can class this as creative media is things like their in-flight safety video I mean that to me is better than all this the sort of one-off stunts they might have done because it's it's has set the bar for you know it was an unex- unexploited um medium again, Loads of people have done this now, but when they first did a funny in-flight safety video, that was that was absolutely incredible. Spotting that that was a media mm. opportunity and it wasn't just dead space where you did a boring old announcement was amazing. And they they sort of use their real estate, but they think everything is a medium, but it is long term. You know, the underside of their pepper pots where they say pinched from uh, Virgin yeah, Atlantic, yeah. and they allow you, they encourage you to steal them. That that to me, that's creative media. <laughs> it it's not a conventional, but that's more like a shoelace than a sort of a mm. um, some crappy sort of um, uh, fad or stunt. It kind of feels like it's integral to the brand. I think yes. that's the point. Is it's not something shoved at the end of a, of a media presentation, uh, and and I think that's you know you you make a very good point there. And I, I, back to that thing about you know culturally businesses wanting to be unexpected to surprise people to be remembered um i think we sort of probably need to bring things to a close now but thank you so much for your time it's been a great discussion uh, very grateful for you uh, taking part and for your sort of frank and open opinions thank you very much it's been great oh, yeah i've really enjoyed it yeah and good luck to everyone trying to come up with those uh, more creative and combined media and creative <laughs> ideas i'm taking on the challenge though So there you have it, insightful and provocative stuff from Jen, Andy and Zoe there. Uh, Thank you again to all of them for agreeing to take part. I think there's some really clear themes that we can take from that. Um, Certainly one that's a principle very dear to our hearts in that everything is media. Everything can communicate. Uh, So 
All that remains for me to say is thank you again to our hosts and our guests. Uh, interesting discussion and, uh, and debate. I hope you'll agree. Uh, and I also, I hope you thought our first foray into audio content was worthwhile because this now brings us to the end of our inaugural podcast, Stuffed in Your Ear. Uh, so let us know if you have any feedback, as I said earlier, uh, both on this podcast or on our weekly Stuffed. If you're a regular subscriber to the electronic version of Stuffed, please share and spread the word. So thank you for listening. I've been Simeon Adams. And who knows? Subject to your positive feedback, I may well continue to be in future. This podcast has been recorded and produced by Red Apple Creative.